Would you like to bring more reality to your enjoyment of prayer? Well, that's the subject of our study today here on Search for Truth, your Bible teaching broadcast with teacher Brian Johnston. Over the next few weeks, Brian will be viewing different areas of our Christian lives in order to discover how to bring greater reality to them. But now let's go to Brian and look at my earlier question. Would you like to bring more reality to your enjoyment of prayer? Thanks, John. Perhaps more than anything else, John Knox is known for his prayer, Give me Scotland or I die. His prayer was not an arrogant demand, but the passionate plea of a man willing to die for the sake of the pure preaching of the gospel and the salvation of his countrymen. The prayers of one man heard at the throne of God were a threat to the throne of Scotland. During the time of the 16th century Scottish Reformation, John Knox's ministry of preaching and prayer were so well known that Mary, Queen of Scots, is reputed to have said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. That connection through prayer between earthly kingdoms and the realm of the heavens is testified to within the Bible itself. Daniel was a man whose prayers overturned world empires and advanced God's outstanding desire to dwell among men and women on earth who were obedient to his will. In the book of Daniel, chapter 10, there's exposed to us the effective reality of prayer in a fallen world. The rise and fall of world empires hinged on the prayers of one man then who was in touch with God by reading God's word and by maintaining a daily prayer discipline. He still observed the daily rhythm of temple service timings decades after the temple itself had ceased to exist, obliterated through the disobedience of his compatriots. Being surrounded by failure gives us no excuse whatever to relax our personal convictions. Daniel is three times described as someone whom God greatly esteemed. No honour attained in the empires of this world can ever rival that. The Lord explained to Daniel how the timings of his prayers coincided with major power shifts on earth that in turn reflected developments in angelic conflicts in the spiritual arena. This tiny glimpse underlines how little we perceive of all that's entailed in our prayers. And yet, we can sometimes be tempted to wonder if prayer does change things. And if it does change things, then what exactly is it that it changes? Does prayer change God's mind? No. The Bible says there are certain things God has decreed from all eternity. Those things will inevitably come to pass. No human being has ever had a more profound understanding of divine sovereignty than our Lord Jesus. No man has ever prayed more effectively. In Gethsemane, he requested an option, a different way. When the request was denied, he bowed to the Father's will. In Matthew's Gospel, that sense of progression is conveyed to us in the way that the main clause changes when we go from the first to the second of our Lord's recorded prayers. Let this cup pass away in the first prayer becomes your will be done in the second. The thrust of the prayer of our Lord has thus changed from if it is possible to if it is not possible. The Lord was bowing to and never attempting to bend what was already settled from the counsels of eternity. 
But then we may well react as we grapple with a sense of reality in prayer by saying, well, if God has got it all settled, is it not pointless to pray? Obviously it can't be, otherwise why would he command us to pray? He also invites us to make our requests known. More than that, the assurance of the scriptures is that prayer works. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working, James 5 and 16 says. The problem is we're not all that righteous. We could do with being a lot more like Daniel and Elijah when it comes to prayer. That brings us back round to our question, does prayer change things? What prayer most often changes is us. That alone is reason enough to pray. But still, the question is a troubling one. If God knows everything, why pray? The question assumes that prayer is one-dimensional and is defined simply as supplication or intercession. On the contrary, prayer is multidimensional. God's sovereignty casts no shadow over the prayer of adoration. God's foreknowledge or determinate counsel doesn't negate the prayer of praise. The only thing it should do is give us greater reason for expressing our adoration for who God is. And more than that, in what way could God's sovereignty negatively affect the prayer of confession? I may not understand the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, but surely I realise that the failures I'm confessing have been brought about by my own will. So we ask again, does prayer change things? Yes. We only have to remember the biblical example of Nineveh. When God hangs his sword of judgment over people's heads and they repent, he then withholds his judgment. That must mean he's changed his mind, mustn't it? Not at all. The mind of God doesn't change, for God himself doesn't change. Things change, and they do so according to God's sovereign will through secondary means, in which prayer plays a part. In Nineveh's case, it was the timing of its judgment that changed. As we saw from Daniel, the prayer of his people is one of the things God uses to make things happen in this world. To believe in the sovereignty of an unchanging God is no deterrent to prayer. In reality, the very reason we pray is because of God's sovereignty. Does prayer change God's mind? No. Does prayer change things? Yes, of course. We need to make sure we're looking at this whole issue of prayer and what is the will of God in a proper biblical way. The problem is we may mean different things when we use the general term, the will of God. The Bible, in fact, uses this expression, the will of God, in at least three different ways and we're going to need to distinguish between them if we want to get to the bottom of the question of prayer and the will of God. When earlier we used the sacred example of our Lord in Gethsemane's garden and we brought to mind his wording, your will be done, we should clarify that as being what we might call the decretive will of God. Now, that's not an everyday word, is it? So it calls for some explanation. This is the will of God as having to do with his eternal decrees. These decrees are eternal, they're fixed, and our prayers aren't going to change them. The Lord himself left us the perfect example of how we interact in prayer with God's decrees. We bow to them in and through prayer, 
and on our part come to adore the God who willed it that way, for it is best, and so we should never want it changed. Take as an example the return of our Lord. He's told us he's coming back, John 14 verse 3. That is God's will, and that is going to happen. How foolish then it would be for us to try to pray against the Lord's return. A second way the words, the will of God, are used in the Bible is when the Lord is prescribing how we should serve him. For example, it's God's will that we should be baptised, as that was clearly commanded in the Bible's historical account of how Christianity began. But that's simply one example. There are a host of other commands to love one another, to avoid stealing and lies and immorality and so on. That's God's preceptive will for us. We describe it that way because it's comprised of all his precepts or commands detailing how he wills for us to live. These and much more are all contained in the faith once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3. That too sounds rather non-negotiable, doesn't it? It would again be nonsense to pray about whether we might be granted special permission to sleep with someone who's not our own husband or wife. Once again, prayer cannot change God's will in that preceptive sense, any more than prayer cannot change God's will in its decretive sense. We can and must still pray in relation to these precepts, but in the same way as the psalmist, confessing his failure to fully keep them and asking God to incline his heart to do much better. Finally, at least for our simple consideration, we come to the third way in which we can legitimately understand what God's will means in Scripture. It's well known that 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 speaks about it being God's will that all people will be saved. Does this mean we all need to be universalists? That is, those people who believe, wrongly as it turns out, that ultimately everyone will be spared the judgment of the lake of fire. The Bible gives us explicit examples of specific persons who will be banished there forever. And so we know the universalist position is simply wrong. So what does it mean when we're told God wills all to be saved? The answer is found in the fact that elsewhere the Bible teaches us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jesus lamented over the refusal of the city dwellers of Jerusalem to come to him and find salvation. The clear sense is that God does not desire that anyone should be lost. In Romans chapter 10, Paul prayed for his compatriot's salvation. He desired it. In fact, he was most passionate about it. When I preach the message of salvation, it's my desire people will be saved. At times, with persons well known and perhaps related to us, we approach the intensity of the passionate desire that Paul expressed for their salvation. We are entering in a small way into God's own desire for their salvation. When our praying engages with things that belong within this category of God's will, we allow ourselves to be influenced through the practice of God's presence until our desires reflect his desires. When we pray specifically for someone's salvation, our prayer encroaches upon the territory of God's unknown decrees. When Paul prayed generally for the unsaved, it was specific only in that the elect may obtain salvation. Sometimes God permits a variation 
on the indicated timing of matters within his decretive will. At other times, he uses those who set aside his preceptive will, for example by acts of murder, to bring about his decrees. However, we want to come finally to think about personal guidance. There are times when God wants us to be at a certain place doing a certain thing, such as the biblical example of the so-called Macedonian call that Paul received in Acts 16. We can also think of Philip the Evangelist in Acts chapter 8 and of Peter and Ananias in Acts chapter 10. However, this is in relation to God's personal guidance in our lives and it doesn't violate any of the wills that we've been considering. I hope that what we've said today helps to make the difference clearer between personal guidance and what is biblically described as being the will of God. Thanks for your talk, Brian. And once again, I hope you found Brian's talk helpful for your prayer life. If there's a comment or question you have after listening, do get in touch, and I'll be giving you the contact details shortly if you've a pen and paper to hand. The talk you've heard today is also available to download via the internet in audio or text format. Simply ask for Get Real. You can do this by email or by post, and here's the address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, the Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wooten Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Thanks for the privilege of your company today and your interest in our programmes. Please join us again next week for another talk in this series, if you can, when Brian will be looking at Christian integrity in our home life. In the meantime, it's very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers, and me, John. Bye for now, and may God richly bless you. <laughs>